Hey everybody, it's Drake. Welcome back to Brain Buzz. We have new intro music and outro music, and we love it. We think it fits our podcast perfectly, and we hope you guys agree. So you'll hear that in a few seconds. It was produced by Anusha Kamesh, who is going to be one of our future guests. She does work in neuroscience, and she's also an amazing musician, so make sure to check our website to see more of her work. You also might notice my voice is a little bit more crappy quality than usual today. Uh, That's my bad. Uh, We had some issues with recording, but everything should sound clear enough. Just pretend that I'm recording from inside a tin can and everything will be all right. Anyway, today we had Dr. Alyssa Croft on and we talked about gender roles and social roles. So how the roles that you fit in in society can change the way you behave and the way you think. But we really got into the differences between men and women uh, in the workplace, in society, and we think that is an awesome conversation that you're going to enjoy. You probably already hear it coming in, but without further ado, here's our new music. Cheers. Friends, colleagues, and social beings, welcome back to yet another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we have the special pleasure of introducing to you Dr. Alyssa Croft from uh, a University of Arizona, but also an alumni of uh, the University of British Columbia. Alyssa, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for taking your time out of your busy schedule. I know uh, I know life is busy and uh, we really appreciate it. Um Tell us in a couple sentences kind of who you are and maybe what you do. All right. Um, I am, like you said, um, I got my PhD and my master's at the University of British Columbia. And uh, I am a social psychologist. And right now I'm an assistant professor at the University of Arizona, which actually happens to be where I also did my bachelor's in psychology. Um, So it's sort of come back full circle in a really interesting way. That's really cool. Uh, you know, there's always this historic uh, precedence where you're supposed to go to new places and learn how to do people, but it's kind of nice to have that uh, familiarity in some ways, I suppose. Alyssa, you know, what is it exactly that you do as a social psychologist? What, what kind of work do you study or what kind of things are you most interested in investigating? So as a social psychologist, my broad interests are thinking about how societal stereotypes and um, norms and the broader culture itself can shape individual level decisions, motivations, behaviors, um, and people's self-concepts. And so within that, I've studied lots of different social identities, um, ways of being, so how people perform different social roles, and um, particularly a lot of my work since I graduated from UBC has been about looking at gender as a particular social role that uh, is affected a lot by our cultural norms and stereotypes and then also affects um, a lot in turn for individual people um, with respect to how they live their daily lives. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe it's worthwhile just give us a really base understanding of what social identity and social roles are. Okay, so if you think about who am I, right, that question can be pretty existential, um, but oftentimes we're thinking about who we are in relation to 
other people and groups that we belong to in society. So if I think, okay, who am I? Well, I'm, um, I'm a professor, I'm a, a psychologist, I'm a friend, I'm a partner to my husband, I'm a, a dog parent, you know, all of these different things are related to um, how I see myself. And so these are what we would call social identities. Um, and social identities are typically related to social groups and social categories that exist in society. So these can either be things that are like, you know, demographic things like my gender category, I identify as a woman, but it can also be things like chosen identities. Uh, I identify as um, a board game lover, right? So you can think about social identity in a lot of different ways. And a lot of the research that comes out of social psychology focuses on social identities in terms of demographics. So thinking about, again, demographics, um, I identify as a poor hockey player. I like like to do it, but I'm not that good, so I'm okay with that. But that might be sort of one of my social identities, sort of part of my demographic of who I am. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so these kind of things make up what are what we call our self-concept or how we think about who we are. It's it's the way that we take a bunch of information about how we see ourselves and we organize it in kind of a structured way, a mental representation of how we think about ourselves. Um, and that relates to a whole bunch of things, not least of which um, the kinds of choices that we make about what we think we can do and what we think we should do and where we want our lives to go and what goals we have for who we're going to become. And that's sort of where we get into the social roles. So it's um, this idea about who I am and what my social identities are can inform the kinds of roles that I am willing to enter into. So that can be things like um, whether or not I choose to go to school, whether or not I choose to become uh, a brain surgeon or a uh, person who builds um, structures. I don't know, like, you know, so, so whatever kind of uh, occupational Someone role. Someone like, does something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, there's only brain surgeons and other things. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so you can sort of see how thinking about who I am is going to inform my thinking about what I do. Sure. Now, I have a couple quick questions about that, maybe. Um, first of all, obviously, we can take on, um, and or maybe not obviously, but it sounds like we can take on many social roles simultaneously, right? So with that in mind, two questions. One, are they hierarchical? So do we rank them in order of what is most important to me versus what is sort of least important in terms of my overall social identity? And then stemming from that, can your social role and social identity change as a function of who you're with or the context of the situation that you're in? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I actually think that your second question in some ways answers your first question because it, you know, the, the degree to which different social identities are active in our self-concept or sort of how we're seeing ourselves in the moment can be very context dependent. Um, and so, you know, what is, at the top of my mind in a certain situation could be completely different from what's at the top of my mind in a totally different situation. And that is, of course, informed by who we're around and what um, this, the sort of surrounding environment 
is like. And so I think, you know, there's some, some research more broadly on things like person perception and, you know, how we see and evaluate other people that suggests that there are some basic, um, like perceptual categories that often take precedence when we're trying to categorize and understand other humans. And so things like our gender, our race, um, really, you know, typically easy things that are um, available at a quick glance are the things that we often use to categorize others in our social world. And so those things often also tend to be some of the most readily available social identities that we have for ourselves. But like I said, those are um, very changeable. And I think um, there's good reason to suspect that that the social roles that we occupy, so whatever kind of social group I'm in at the moment can also feed back into making salient different identities that I have. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking like a good example would be, you know, thinking of who you are as a teenager, maybe, because there's always these different roles that you're, you're playing. You can think of how you are or who you are in relation to your family. So how you act when you're at home. Uh, versus when you're with friends at high school or, you know, at school. Uh, or then you have work, your work roles as well. You're going to be acting differently and responding differently to, to maybe the same stimuli based on what role you're, you're kind of taking up at that time, right? Absolutely. And the, the research um, absolutely sort of supports that general idea that the context can really shape how people think about themselves and also how they behave. Yeah, you might you might be more willing to tell some, like, you know, sexual sexually charged jokes with friends but you're not going to be you know slinging those jokes around when your mom and dad are in front of you at the dinner table yeah no (laughs) you mean thanksgiving isn't a great time to bust out all the pervy sex jokes (laughs) depends on who your family is i guess yeah, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. So now that we've got, I think, kind of a, a nice starting point to really dive into this conversation, Alyssa, maybe you could share a little bit more about some of your more recent work about uh, gender role. Yeah. So building on um, these kind of initial assumptions that we've been talking about around social identity and social roles, we uh, in the social sciences have been sort of tracking over time the degree to which gender roles are changing. Uh, and what that what I mean by that is sort of if you think about traditional gender division of labor, right, with um, men as breadwinners, women as caregivers, and this sort of um, division of labor that's s- somewhat rooted in our ancestral past and our, our biological differences um, between men and women and the roles that they play in um, the perpetuation of our species, right, that has changed quite substantially in the past 50 or 60 years. So from about uh, the 1960s, 1970s, women's roles have really been changing quite rapidly in terms of uh, what's sort of socially acceptable uh, for women to do. So there's more and more messaging about, you know, girls can be anything they want to be. And there's been uh, a lot of discourse and research and um, policy and conversation around getting girls and women to do things that men have traditionally done exclusively. So, you know, key examples are recruiting girls and women into STEM occupations, science, technology, engineering, math occupations, um, as well as trying to increase the number of girls and women in leadership and management positions. Uh, But what we're not seeing is 
uh, of the inverse of that, right? We're not seeing that um, men are necessarily being encouraged to take on more active parenting roles and to become stay-at-home parents or uh, even, you know, within occupational roles, there are jobs that are predominantly occupied by women, things like nursing, elementary education, um, health aides, social work, things like that. And there's not been a similar push to recruit men into those kinds of roles. And so this um, is what we're calling an asymmetry in changing gender roles. And this asymmetry has been really fascinating for me uh, in my research because it has a lot of implications for gender equality on a broader scale. Yeah, no, I think the I think that asymmetry is is a really critical piece that uh, we need to pay a little bit more attention to, perhaps. Um, can you explain what the ramifications for having this asymmetry are? Like, because I know you know everybody's talking about, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have uh, gender force uh, gender workforces split fifty fifty between uh, men and women? Um, but surely there must be some. I don't want to say consequences of of having more women in the workforce, but if the workforce is changing, um, you know, how are we keeping up with that in terms of things that were traditionally split by gender in terms of, you know, uh, work versus household care and chores and stuff like that, child rearing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I think that's, you've really hit it on the head there. That's really what I am trying to investigate is what are the implications of this asymmetry in changing gender roles? And I think there are many. So one of the biggest things that I think about is how when we talk about gender equality or gender issues, often what comes to mind for people is like, oh, that's a woman's problem. But what we're mm-hmm. finding in our research is like, this is actually a society problem. This is this has far reaching impact on not just women, not just men, not just kids, but everybody. There's economic impact. So there are lots of reasons um, why we should pay attention to and, and think about how this asymmetry is affecting people. So one thing that's um, really on my mind right now is this potential global epidemic of the coronavirus, the COVID-19. Um, and, you know, in, in the midst of all of this, it's been really salient for me that the number of nurses and healthcare aides that we have is already way too low given the you know the life expectancy is increasing and the aging baby boomer population etc you know and now i'm seeing all these graphics circulating around about how our healthcare system is about to be severely overtaxed and i think about the fact that we have only been actively trying to recruit half the population into these healthcare and nursing roles to begin with, right? There haven't really been active efforts to recruit men into these jobs. And so even though there are way more jobs than there are people to fill them, we're missing out on 50% of the potential workforce that could be contributing to helping the society in this way. So that's one example that comes to mind for me. Um, Another thing, as you mentioned, is sort of thinking about childcare and unpaid domestic labor. And, you know, the fact that there is still, you know, despite there being 50% of the paid workforce uh, is now women, there is a striking underrepresentation of men 
doing um, unpaid labor. So there's disproportionately more women doing the cooking, the cleaning, the childcare, etc. And what this means is that even though men and women typically on average are working the same amount of paid work hours outside the home, women are also doing more at home. And what this sort of means is that they're not just taking on new roles, they're taking on additional roles. And that right. is a really exhausting, um, th those are really exhausting shoes to fill for women. And so I think one of the main issues that happens is what's called the second shift for working moms, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's this idea that even after working full time, um, they come home at the end of the day and are doing disproportionately more of the unpaid domestic and emotional labor to care for their families, which is arguably a, a really important job to do, right? Because, you know, to the degree that kids are our future, um, this is a super important and relevant and impactful task to be doing. And so if all of these things are falling onto women's shoulders, that necessarily is going to mean that broader gender equality and the opportunities that are available to women and the potential advancement for women is going to be um, tougher to achieve because women are potentially trying to like do it all as they're saying. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe it would be helpful momentarily to sort of put things in perspective is, you know, back in the fifties, sixties or seventies, you know, the, the typical setup was that the man would go to work in the morning and the wife would stay home. And when he came home, he'd have dinner with her and the family and then have a couple hours with the kids. And then she would put the kids to bed and then rinse and repeat over and over. But what you're saying is that in some ways the there's asymmetry now in that that's societal expectation is still there for men, but women are now in the workforce and so they get home at the same time the, their husband or partner does and are now expected to do all the things that they weren't doing uh through the course of the day would that be kind of a, a approximation of what you've been getting at yeah yeah exactly exactly oh, yeah. i see it's funny that you say it that way i see it as the men just not having to adjust <laughs> oh yeah uh, that's what i mean yeah it, yeah it yeah. just seems like uh we have our I say we, I'm sorry. So it seems like men have just kind of been inactive whenever this, this shift has been occurring. And so really it's, there's been movement in the workforce, but nothing else. Yeah. And I think like not, you know, it's not necessarily to say anybody's been inactive or anybody's to blame. I think the, the broader issue that we're highlighting in our research is just that these are things that have traditionally just been taken for granted or, or accepted at face value and nobody seems to really be challenging them or thinking about them. Um, at least in the, you know, in the social psychology space, there are very few researchers who are investigating this problem as, a, you know, something that is important for broader gender equality. And so what I think we're trying to do is a shed light on the gender roles that we've sort of taken for granted up until now. Um, particularly that means things like domestic division of labor and things like that, but also things like there aren't as many men nurses, there aren't as many men, you know, elementary teachers, and we know role models are really important. So little boys aren't um, growing up seeing men teaching them in their classrooms, for example. Um, but the other thing is that um, we are thinking about the ways in which 
this kind of asymmetry can circle back and directly impact uh, in a negative way opportunities and advancement for women. Um, if, you know, the broader zeitgeist is about trying to promote gender equality in the context of advancing women. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's an incredible question. And, and I think the, the work that you're doing is really cool. Um, one of the things that I, you know, I always kind of try and place, when we have these conversations, I always try and think back to my own personal experience. And um, my wife is a physician. And so uh, there's sort of this ongoing joke within parts of my family that at some point I'll be a stay-at-home dad. And I would I love to be a stay-at-home dad? Sure. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, but at the same time, I've, I've been doing a lot of school. I want to, you know, <laughs> I've been doing this a long time and I want to eventually get a job and be rewarded for the work that I've put in. And so part of it is like, how, how then do you balance the situation where, you know, my wife could go to work and do all the work that she's trained to do and I could go do the same thing. But then we could both return home to a family and not have to be in a situation where one of us is taking on a significant greater amount of the work in the domestic sphere than the other. Yeah, absolutely. And and I also just want to highlight something that you said, which was that it's this running joke, right? It's just that even yeah. The, yeah. the idea of it is laughable for people. And I think that's something to maybe pause and examine uh, in terms of what does that mean? What does that say about our culture, about our society? And what, how does that have like downstream consequences for people who might actually, you know, really value that or want to take on that role? It's, it's really disincentivizing when, you know, doing that would actually make you the butt of a joke, right? Obviously, a lot of the work's focused on uh, married couples with children, but uh, are we seeing these same kind of, you know, divides in the home life and like in the home life for individuals that don't have children that are you know when you have uh say couples or whatever uh living together are we seeing these same like divisions of labor like these issues with divisional labor whenever it's not family related or familiar related yes the short answer is yes um the the gender division of labor differences um, become exponentially larger particularly when heterosexual couples have children. But right. I think the circling back to what we were talking about earlier, the whole idea is that that these gender roles, these um, norms and stereotypes that, that govern people's behavior are really influential, right? They're really insidious and they seep into pretty much every aspect of the way that we do life. And so they show up in a lot of different ways. And so like, for example, you know, going um, a bit outside of the, the household context or the relationship context, there's this uh, idea, and this has also been getting some attention in the media in the last couple of years, not all of it positive attention, but um, there's this idea about what masculinity means and how masculinity can be, quote, toxic. Um, and I don't really like that as... A way of framing the idea because I think it kind of puts people's hackles up and um, and, yeah. and sends the wrong message but but I do think that there is definitely reason to think and this is based on mine and other people's empirical research as well that there are these masculinity norms these these perceptions or ideals about what it means to be a good man in our current society that govern a lot of what men um, feel like 
they can do or say or feel. And that's also really problematic for men and for everyone. Yeah. And so, Alyssa, can we kind of just like talk about what these norms are? Like what what is the ideal man now versus, you know, a few years, a few years ago? Right. Yeah. And I think, frankly, I don't know that it's changed that much um, in Mm. the last, you know, hundred years or so. Um, there, you know, I, I do think strong, like quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Strong. Feeling that not change. Yeah. Not weak, not vulnerable, um, not too, uh, wimpy seeming, right. Like not too in touch with their feelings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, this, this is all to say like, these are the general perceptions that people have. Um, uh, more recently, within the last year or so, a couple of papers have come out showing that there's actually a discrepancy between people's perceptions that this is the case and how men actually feel about these issues, right? Um, mm-hmm. Basically, the finding is that men, when they think about how they would want to be or how they actually feel, report not being in line with these societal expectations, but that they expect other people to think that. And so they have to sort of behave along those lines so that others don't right. um, sort of punish them socially. So it's all, it's almost as though, uh, you know, socially, this is what needs to be, you know, the same has held true for, you know, ever seemingly. Um, whereas in private, men are more willing to acknowledge, like, yeah, I want to be able to do these things. And, you know, maybe at some level things have changed but just haven't changed openly would that be kind of a fair i think so yeah i think so and i think there are starting to be more and more shifts um and more and more of an explicit conversation about how these things might change going forward but not to the same extent that we're talking about how roles and expectations can change for women Um, and so it may just be that this is a lot slower on the uptake um or as people have argued, there is this um, sense in which masculinity is potentially precarious. And so the idea is that relative to femininity, according to the research, um, masculinity is something that can be lost. It's something that can be taken away from you. And so that necessitates a kind of masculinity contest in a sense where men feel like they have to be doing things to constantly prove how men, how manly they are and how masculine um, they are so that um, other people don't mistake that, um, mistake their behavior as being um, non-masculine. Right. Is there, is there even a female version of emasculation? Is there a word for that? I'm curious. <laughs> just, just, aside, just an aside. No, that's interesting. Like, uh, the fact that we have a word for it that I can readily like it's it's very common for people to know the word emasculation right uh, which is you know essentially exactly that right the deprivation of a male's role or identity but i I can't think of the female version of that yeah that's a good point anyway sorry yeah Yeah, no i can't think of one either um and i I think that's like that, that kind of is a telling thing as well and i think it adds to your point is that you know the words that we use really shape our world that we live in right and that's that's there's theories that state like, you know, the words that the language we use shapes the world that we perceive. And mm-hmm. if we can't, if we have a word that's readily available on everybody's tongue for, for like emasculation, but not for the female equivalent, it's kind of interesting and telling uh, that there are these significant uh, 
differences in gender roles and the asymmetry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another one that often comes to mind for me, which is sort of the inverse of this, is that there's not necessarily a word that's the equivalent of tomboy for a kid, right? If you think about a little girl who maybe has some um, interests and things that are, quote, boy things, um, then she's a tomboy. And like, oh, that's kind of cute and it's okay. But there's not really any sort of word that has as positive a connotation for a little boy who's interested in, quote, girl things. Yeah. 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 And I think there's a lot, I think this is interesting. I mean, talking about gender, gender roles and, uh, and, and not being, not also addressing, you know, people's, uh, people jumping to sexual orientation and sexual identity. Uh, that's also something I think is important too, that often I think kind of, uh, gets associated with those kind of, you know, that, that, that the, the male version of a tomboy, uh, is that, that they might be, you know, he might, you know, he might not be heterosexual, uh, because that he's interested in females, which is not the same case for tomboys. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you're suggesting is another really important point, which is that people often conflate gender identity with sexual orientation or sexual identity. Absolutely. And they're they're Absolutely. totally different things and they are orthogonal to each other, right? They don't have to be um, they don't have to be intertwined necessarily. They can be completely independent identities that people have. Um, and so sure. that's another uh, really interesting avenue I think for future research to try to do more to disentangle those things because they have different implications for everyday life yeah absolutely absolutely and so Alyssa with this work I mean we've been talking a lot about these these issues within this gender division these gender roles how do we as an individual how can I change my thinking or change the way that I address gender roles uh, and how would you recommend we as a whole change these kind of perspectives? I'm asking you, like, I know I'm asking you probably the two hardest <laughs> questions that don't have answers. <laughs> uh, they are very tall order questions, but I think... Give me the answer to everything right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, try it. that that's, that's a, they're good questions. And they're the, the questions that sort of motivate my entire career, right? Uh, I think Absolutely. they're definitely things, I mean, I, I have to... I have to believe on some level that things can change. Otherwise, it would be really discouraging to do the research that I do. Um, And so, in my opinion, the first step really is to have this conversation that we're currently having. I think, like I was saying before, shedding light on just assumptions that we have and cultural norms that we often just take for granted is really the first step in just like noticing that there's potentially a problem. And then from there, we can start to do things where we intervene and we think about how we might, um, as social psychologists, uh, we really like to mess with people, right? So we do um, <laughs> experiments and behavioral uh, behavioral studies. And so we're you know thinking about, okay, we've discovered some of these more basic things about the ways that people think about gender and the ways that people enact their gender roles. So now, how do we start to go in and push these things around a bit? Um, and so some of the findings that we have, for example, um, a recent paper that just came out was... Uh, where we showed that people are just generally much more supportive of efforts to increase the number of women in fields like STEM, um, but they're not very supportive of efforts to increase the representation of men in fields that are female dominated or female stereotypic. Um, And that this difference is actually explained by 
their assumptions about what keeps men and women out of different roles. So what I mean by that is people assume that um, women are kept out of STEM for more external reasons, things like stereotyping, discrimination, bias, um, that women, they really just want to do these things, but there are systemic external factors that are blocking them from doing this. But conversely, people think that men don't uh, have these kinds of internal motivations to do things like nursing or parenting or um, taking on other female stereotypic roles and occupations. And so because people think, oh, men just aren't interested or men don't have that innate ability to be caring and to be um, that that other orientedness. uh, Uh And that predicts people's support for engaging in change. And so what that suggests to me is that we need to start by tackling people's assumptions about why people do the things that they do and um, tackling assumptions about the opportunities that are open to different people. Because as we know, it seems like maybe all these different paths are open, but based on how we internalize stereotypes and norms into our sense of who we are, into that self-concept, that could really change what we feel like we can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. I, I, I have one question kind of getting at like how we can shift this. And it's, it's more or less it's a cheap way of asking, but it, are there generational differences right now in the way that we perceive gender roles? Cause I like, I feel like every generation always thinks that they're more, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, they're, they're, they're much more inclusive and, and able to think of things and differently than the older generation or their parents or grandparents generations. Right. And so they always think that, yes, I'm much more forward thinking. I'm able to kind of, you know, include all these other groups and I'm more inclusive. Is that the case? Do you see generational divides? Yes, that is the case. So you're not entirely uh, (laughs) just, (laughs) you know, wishful thinking there. Um, So there is empirical evidence that uh, things are shifting in sort of cohort level differences. Um, One thing that, that I find really interesting is that gender identity, so sort of identifying as either a man or a woman, Um, has become much more fluid in younger generations. So current generations of adolescents, for example, have way more uh, categories or options for how they identify in terms of their gender. Um, And some of them, you know, don't even want to pick a category at all. And that's actually becoming more socially acceptable as well. So while I think, yes, there is evidence to suggest um, some generational differences and maybe um, some some really promising cohort shifts that are happening with younger generations of kids who are growing up now, I don't think that that's going to be enough. I think that there's still, you know, I don't want to get too complacent with just thinking, oh, things will just change over time because socially <laughs> yeah. things will change over time. I, I think that's true, but I also think that um, maybe more concerted efforts are also necessary. Right. And I think we're at a unique time, too, where uh, the, the youngest generations now are, have much more of a globalized perspective of the world, right? And they have the ability to kind of interact and see different perspectives where not all generations that are still living today had that when they were younger, uh, when they were formulating their opinions and these gender roles in their heads. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think um, there's there's a lot of research showing the importance of role models and you know seeing people in different roles and occupations that 
are similar to you or people who you identify with. And, and that can really empower kids and people to think, oh, hey, I could do that too, because that person who looks like me or that person who is similar to me or that person who had a journey that was um, similar to the journey that I'm on uh, was able to do this position or this job or this role. And that can be right. a really fruitful avenue for encouraging and empowering people to, to take on um, positions that otherwise they might be barred from. Yeah, the roles that we see now are much different because of the internet. Uh, I mean, the role models that we had to choose from were the, as you know, boys or, or young girls, it's whoever is in front of you or whoever the, the athlete or the, the movie star was. Those are pretty much the options that you had uh, because that was the media that was, was in front of us. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and we in my lab also agree that this is a super important um, and relevant current cultural shift that's happening with, you know, pretty much anybody can put anything on the internet at any time. And that <laughs> is a really interesting prospect and a really terrifying one. Um, and so we're Absolutely. actually uh, launching uh, a couple of new projects where we're, we're looking at the impact of social media on people's social identities and on um, the kinds of ways that they think about themselves and how that can either foster or undermine um, people's social engagement and their um, their sort of connection or sense of belonging with other people in the world as a result. I mean, the perfect example of that is look at this, look at these two idiots hosting this podcast. I mean, we're able to sit here, put whatever we want out into the world pretty readily, pr pretty easily. Um, pretty great. <laughs> anyway, anyway, all joking, all joking aside. aside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alyssa, so I want to ask you, and I'm, I know your area is ripe for these, what kinds of myths and misconceptions can we combat in the next couple minutes here? A couple jump to mind uh, in, in particular when we're talking about this idea of gender equality and asymmetry and gender change. Um, the first myth that I sometimes hear people saying uh, is oh, gender equality, we've achieved it, right? We're done, check. Uh, and I think clearly based on just our conversation today, plus a lot of other information, um, that is definitely a myth. Um, we've definitely made strides and we're making progress towards um, doing better and achieving gender equality. But I think that in and of itself is something that needs to be unpacked. Like what, is it, what does gender equality mean and what, domains and areas and contexts are we talking about when we talk about gender equality? Because um, if we think about, you know, well, women are 50% of the paid workforce now, so great, we did it. Um, but uh, there's a lot to unpack under the surface there if we just look at, okay, yeah, 50% of the paid workforce, but there's a, a stark, um, like almost status divide in terms of the types of jobs that men and women do, where men are still um, overrepresented in higher status jobs and higher paying jobs and management and leadership roles and women are doing more of the um, the lower status lower value kinds of work even within that 50% so that um, also like we were talking about with domestic roles um, there's, there's also lots of reasons to think about how you know we're not we're, our work is not yet done um, and you know without going too political like just the, the reactants that a um, potential female president has gotten in the US in the last two uh, presidential election cycles, I think like that's another little piece of evidence 
that just shows how far we yet have to go towards gender equality. So that's one thing that is a myth. Yeah, great myth. One that's certainly in need of being busted, busting. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. We, I mean, like you said, we've made great progress and we've made strides towards something, but uh, we're clearly not there yet. So let's make change. Be the change you want to see in the world, right? <laughs> Perfect. Love it. All right. Um, Alyssa, just before we wrap up here, then, um, is there anybody you'd like to take a shout out to or give a shout out to, I should say? Uh, anything you'd like to mention the floor is all yours so take her away well i think obvious answers come to mind first our shout out to my lab to my awesome grad students kira hannah and ellen um shout out to my awesome collaborators and colleagues i could not do this job without the amazing people who support the research and who inspire me and motivate me to keep going uh and i think like shout out to you guys for doing this awesome podcast i i really admire what you're doing uh bringing science to the public and making it accessible making it interesting i think that is also another very important and undervalued part of the job that we as scientists and academics um need to do and probably should do better at so thank you oh thanks you flatter us <laughs> Truly. Um, Alyssa, how uh, how might our listeners get in touch with you if they've got follow-up questions? Um, they can email me uh, at alyssac at email.arizona.edu and also um, on Twitter at Dr. Alyssa Croft. Perfect. As always, we'll have links to all that as well as um, pertinent information, studies, all that kind of information up on brainbuzzpodcast.com, where not only can you find uh, Alyssa's wonderful episode, but as well, all the other wonderful episodes that we've had the, uh, the pleasure and opportunity to record. Um, if you've enjoyed the program, leave us a star, leave us a couple of reviews, a like, something, wherever you found it. Uh, it just... Hey, it's nice to know and nice for us to hear, but it also helps kind of get the word out. Um, and don't be afraid. Reach out on social media. Uh, Drake and I are at Bra Brain yeah. Drake and I are at brainbuzzpodcast.com on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can also email us brainbuzzpod at gmail.com. So reach out, say hello, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, and uh, you know, we'll strive to to do better as we always want to. Um, all right, with that. We'll call it an episode. Thank you, Alyssa, so much. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed as much as we have. Cheers. Cheers.